Welcome everybody to Black Coffee and Theology. All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I have author <laughs> here, um, still newly minted uh, in some ways, mm-hmm. um, an advocate. Uh, hey, Kevin Nye, welcome to the podcast. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, hey, I'm excited. I'm excited. Um, feel a little late to the train, but we are here nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I start off every interview with people asking them to talk about who you are, how you interface with the world, what's important to you. Yeah. So I grew up in a in the Church of the Nazarene, which I don't know if you're familiar with that denomination. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, it's a you know does some things right, does some things that you know leave some things to be desired, of course. Yeah. Um, and when I was around middle school age, I I perceived, understood like a call to ministry, and mm. pursued that like headlong, like. I went to, you know, Bible school through my denomination in Oklahoma, and then I moved on to seminary, kind of because I I fell in love with the academics a little bit, and I'm 21, and I don't think I want to be a youth pastor, and that's like my only option, (laughs) so, um, and kind of, you know, a word that gets used a lot now, but that we didn't necessarily have back then you know, deconstruction that's something that was kind of happening for me during that time through that you know the exposure i was getting to different ways of of thinking that were different than how i grew up and exposure to you know different theologies and i got to a point where at the end of my academic studies with my denomination i was kind of at a we were at an impasse on a couple of issues <laughs> that uh, that I couldn't budge on and they couldn't budge on. And so we kind of had to go our separate ways a little bit. And I had, I had started already about a year before that working in, in homelessness uh, just as a way of kind of living out what I thought was important, which was, you know, seeking the welfare of the city where I was, I was in Los Angeles. So, you know, two plus two equals four situation. <laughs> There's a lot of homelessness in Los Angeles, and that seemed to be uh, a pretty clear uh, outlet for me to try to kind of put my my work, my literal day to day work, where my you know where my uh, heart was. And so when things kind of weren't working out with the denomination, I I at least had the ability to say, okay, I'm already doing something that that I feel is living out what, what I think is, is important, what God thinks is important. And so I just kept doing that. And eventually I got to a point working in that field where I kind of wanted to speak back to the church community and say like, you know, what I had learned in working with people who are experiencing homelessness uh, was you know what what actually works what uh, what does address homelessness what doesn't effectively address homelessness uh, a lot of kind of 
debunking of myths that I grew up hearing in the church. Um, and then a lot of things that sort of went against church models of addressing homelessness, but that actually mm -hmm. I thought were more authentic to Christian faith. Yeah. And so that's what kind of led me to to want to write the book that I did was kind of putting these two halves of myself together in a way and and find a, a synthesis of, you know, the the faith that that informs the work I do, but also the work that I was doing that was even informing my faith. Mm. Mm, I love that. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, truly, I um so, you know, as I was said already in the introduction, but we're talking about your book, uh, Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness. And I loved reading this book, uh, you know, over the past couple of weeks, really sitting with certain sections. And as we enter our conversation, I, I let me be vulnerable uh, for people who not, may not know all of my story. Uh, so I was homeless for a time um, on two different occasions, actually. And I shared that because um, I think of uh, some years ago, I was sitting in a, um, a business meeting and there were I had two coworkers that were talking about homeless people and people experiencing homelessness. Right. And um, they were saying all of their beliefs about, uh, you know, why people are homeless and um, laziness, of course, was thrown in there and all these mm -hmm. different things. And uh, I was able to share with them, what do you, you know, and ask them, what do you think of when you think of uh, of people who are homeless? Uh, and of course, they continue sharing eagerly to, you know. And uh, I was able to share with them, uh, I have been homeless, which, you know, and so I think when we think of people without a home, there are certain images that come to mind and there are certain uh, inherent qualities that come to mind. And for me, the times that I was on the streets and going from home to home, trying to crash places, it had nothing to do with being lazy. And honestly, it was a confluence of events, right? Um, both monetarily, um, really dysfunctional home growing up. And I found myself not able to provide for myself. And it had nothing to, it wasn't a, it wasn't a character flaw. And so I, I want to enter the conversation there saying people have different stories as it relates to this topic. And as I was reading your book, I really appreciated the dignity that you gave to individuals and groups. Um, yeah. So I just want to say that on the, the front end. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Cause and it's so important to be able to, to do that because something I've learned over time is, you know, the thing that breaks down myths, like as much as I wrote a book, hoping to break down some myths, right. Something I do on purpose in the book is tell a lot of stories because it's really when people encounter people with lived experience who, you know, preferably face-to-face, -face, right, have and build relationships with folks who who have experienced this, that usually you meet one person and you're like, oh, wow, they didn't match the my myths or stereotypes. They must be the exception, right? But then you meet a couple more and you're like, oh, maybe 
maybe everyone is the exception because everyone has a different story right there there are no like these are like the you know these are the good homeless people you know that we should help and they're they're just the ones who you know they just lost a job or like they their fall into homelessness is something that i can like relate to or get behind versus these other people who you know i'm going to try to find some way to moralize or justify and blame them for the for why they are in the situation Mm. that they are right and and the fact is like you can if you break down and get down to any individual story uh you will find reason upon reason (laughs) to to break to break down these myths you know Mm. and and the point that i make in the book and the reason grace is such a, a prominent part of the title in the book is to say that uh even if all of that were true, even if it totally was their fault, like it mm. shouldn't matter. Mm. Thanks, buddy. My son just brought me his leftover pancake. <laughs> Come on, let's go. That's a good. That's a good kid. <laughs> that's um, right. That's so. Th- that actually segues beautifully um, to this thought that I had when reading your book. I loved how you're able to weave theology through it often I feel like people are waiting on like uh one bible verse to prove that I should be able to do this um mm-hmm. you know or to be compassionate to people like give me the you know the the one bible verse um and I always like buck against that but I loved how you were like able to to weave theology through it as well mm-hmm. and I think um you know, I think our perception of God, what God is like, what God cares about really relates to how Christian people respond to this dynamic with uh, people who are homeless. And so give us some God talk. Like what are, uh, I don't want to give away all the the, the juices <laughs> in the book, but yeah, what is your perception uh, of God and how God relates to this issue? Yeah, I mean, I'm very, very informed by, you know, liberation theologies that that say that, you know, God, God chooses sides and God is on the side of, of the oppressed. And, Mm. um, you know, one of the, one of the key passages that I really hone in on early in the book, so it's not too much of a spoiler, (laughs) y'all, is, you know, the, a a very famous passage where Jesus, you know, says, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done to me and lists out, you know, I was hungry and you fed me, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you took care of me, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And from that, we've often gleaned the idea that like, oh, when I am serving, you know, the least of these, you know, people who are poor, people who are experiencing homelessness, I'm serving Jesus. Yay. It's a call to compassion. It's a call to, to Mm. charity. It's a call to like a service model. Um, But what I see in that passage that I'm I'm grateful that I only see this because I've actually spent time with people experiencing homelessness and, and learned to see it new ways. Right. What I now see in that passage is uh if we actually meant what we said that when we encounter a person experiencing homelessness we're encountering jesus we probably would not we probably would not be showing up in ways that are you know 
I am here to serve you. Uh, I am at a higher rung than you bestowing yeah. like compassion downward to you that actually that would be a relationship hopefully that we would enter into seeking to learn and seeking mm. to like spend time because um, very often what happens even among the very well-meaning people of faith with regards to homelessness is that we we never get past that hierarchy yes. of you know i am i am i am above you <laughs> and I am graciously giving of my time or money or energy mm. or resources to you. And a lot of the way that we go about it reinforces that hierarchy, right? It's mm. a lot of churches who will who will feed people, who will shelter people. And I don't want to say stop doing that, but they will do that, but they will never advance to the point of asking like, why are so many people hungry? Why are so many people unsheltered? Do we need to like change policies? Do we need to like, like put some of these people who keep coming to our shelter, our winter shelter every single year? Do we just need to put them in a, in a home? You know, like they never like go beyond that. And in some ways I think it's because it just kind of to do that would disrupt the hierarchy. Right. Yeah. Um, But what I see in that passage is Jesus saying like, if you are whatever you do to the least of these, that's me. So if you show up, you know, with your paternalism, you're you're being paternalistic to Jesus, you know. Yeah. Or on the other side, you're telling Jesus to like pull himself up by his bootstraps, you know, like mm. like we need to question it's not just a call to compassion, it's a call to a a relationship where we actually reorient the dynamic in yeah. that of that relationship yeah so you know you're getting at the the heart of advocacy work and i think it's really difficult for people entering into any type of advocacy work to walk alongside instead of climb that hierarchy right yeah. uh it feels like this pull upwards automatically right um which comes off condescending, <laughs> which comes mm-hmm. off, I know what you need and um, hate it. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, you say on page 37, um, you know, I got my notes in the book. <laughs> you, <do>. <laughs> <laughs> um, you write this, this portion that sticks with me. You said, likewise, it provokes the traditional liberal approach, which will mm-hmm. spend billions of dollars on programs meant to help but that are inaccessible and misdirected because they never incorporated the perspectives, desires, and participation of the people they were designed to serve. And later you, you, you highlight these two questions and you say, what do you want or need and how can I help? And I, I'm curious uh, for you to talk more on that because I have often said when doing advocacy work, it is easy to speak over someone um, to fill in the blank and, you know, spend, you know, billions of dollars on things that nobody asked for. Um, And so talk about that dynamic, especially as it relates to the work that you do. Yeah. And it's funny that because I saw. My my friend Lindsay Krinks, uh, who wrote a, another awesome book on homelessness, she does a lot of work in Nashville, and she has because she's in Tennessee, she has to deal with a lot of 
you know, conservative Republicans, right? And so, um, yeah, right. Um, and so when I sent her the book, you know, she she was actually like, uh, there were a couple times where it was like, oh, I'm actually kind of, I go really hard at liberals and I don't talk very much ab about conservatives. And part of that is because I figure like, who's going to read this book by me is probably going to lean a little more liberal, right? Uh, but also I'm, I did all of the work that I did that led up to this book in Los Angeles and Los Angeles is just absolutely the, like the haven, like the capital city of like white neoliberalism of like performative, like we, we say everything right, but really we're, we're upholding the same structures of, of violence and oppression. Right. And so for me, it was really important to to come at that in this book because over and over again, I saw so much money, so many programs um, happening that just completely bypassed the the actual things that were being asked for, which was like housing, outreach, hygiene supplies. Um, I mean, really like, and this is happening everywhere now that we're going back to this very old outdated model of just putting up shelters and forcing people to go into them. And if there's one thing that I can tell you that unhoused people do not care for in the world of service provision, it is shelters. Like, and yet over and over again, we keep going back to this model of building shelters. And then, and now it's, it has this insidious hook on it where, uh, you know, we, we're actually using it as an excuse to get rid of encampments, right? Where we'll build a new shelter and we'll say, hey, we built the shelter. So now you all have no reason to sleep here on the streets. Doesn't matter if the shelter has a ton of barriers. Doesn't matter if the shelter is gross. It doesn't matter if we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're trying to put you in a, like in an indoor setting with 80 people in a basketball gym, right? None of that matters because we we did something right. And and the politicians who will actually uh, run on this will run on a compassionate response to homelessness. Um, but really it's, it's a backhanded way of trying to address what they see the problem is, which is people are sleeping where we don't want them to rather than people are experiencing like housing insecurity in our city. Oh, you're preaching. I, I, I think that the, there are massive implications of of this, right? Like not listening to the people that you're supposedly advocating for means you are coming up with solutions that really may not work, right? And I see a lot of overlap mm -hmm. with the anti-racism movement, which I was applying some things in my mind as you were talking, mm -hmm. right? And when you come up with these answers that are in your mind, the worst possible things, right? Like um, I, I think of how demeaning and dehumanizing it is for, um, for me to tell you, here's the answer to your problems and not really listen to you in your own voice, describe to me, what are your own barriers? Um, yeah. And what are your barriers to access? What are your barriers, you know? And so a shelter is great if that is what people are saying that that's what they need. 
Um, but to your point, it's <laughs> people are not always saying that. And um, it's it is insidious when we think that we're doing the work of liberation and all we're doing is uh, muting people's voices um, and uh, decentering their agency. So I, I was thinking that as you were talking. Yeah, and I and I think that's again why I wanted to write the book because I don't think that everybody who participates in it is doing so with an insidious desire, right? I think mm -hmm. what often happens is people who are in positions of power uh, do have insidious motive and are able to disguise it in very compassionate language, right? Um, I give a lot of examples of this at the end of the book of you know. Uh, politicians who run on like, you know, we've, uh, you know, Eric Adams in New York did a lot of this, like, right, where he's like, street, like, he, he'll he say something like, nobody should have to sleep outside. And you're like, yes, that is true. So what you mean, <laughs> Mr. Mayor, is that everyone should have access to to housing it's like, no, that's not really he's what like, I mean. like, no, what that's I mean. not what I'm saying. No. no. Hey everyone, it's Faith Brooks here. I'm so excited to let you know that my new book, Remember Me Now, A Journey Back to Myself and a Love Letter to Black Women is now available wherever books are sold. So go ahead and get yourself a copy, share it with a friend, and I am just so excited for you to get this book into your hands and I can't wait for all of us to be able to talk about it soon. I, I'm curious, um, you know, you write in this later in the book, you talk about marginalized, uh, communities, um, and you, you list out different ones, uh, you know, especially by race and, um, gender, uh, you know, LGBTQ, uh, people. And I was curious if you were going to get to it. I really was happy <laughs> because <laughs> I was, I, I, I didn't know if I had faith in you, brother. I I was like, I get it. If this is a book and this is just you're not addressing this elephant in the room, I would be mad. But you did. You landed the plane. I was. <laughs> mm. So talk about talk about uh, you know this issue of homelessness and and real people in and how marginalized and multiply marginalized identities can intersect in in uh, very tough ways. Sure. So I'm, I'm laughing a little bit that that was your experience with the book because it was actually, it was extremely intentional and it felt like, like very, uh, like I was walking a very fine line. You'll mm -hmm. notice that uh, it's almost exactly in the middle of the book mm -hmm. that I do that because uh, there was a part of me that wanted to make sure, because I figured a lot of folks would pick up this book about homelessness, who would who would who would bristle at talking about those topics, and mm. I wanted to I wanted to hook them, like to they where they got to the point in the book where they were like, I'm already halfway, <laughs> you know, or yeah. like or or maybe I've like maybe I've like earned their like earned their trust a little bit to like mm. then actually hit some of these like real topics because yeah. um, yeah. let me say, let me say yeah. this this part like because one thing i love that you do is you talk about 
there are systems in place, there are systemic things that are causing this epidemic, right? Like th it's mm -hmm. not coming out of nowhere. And what has been painful for me to read in uh, different books on even on the same topic is when people don't address those systems do discriminate. They're not hitting everyone the same. And so yeah. I need to know how, how are black people affected by this? They're not, you know, um, I wanted to hear that. And so you did, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's really important. And I, I talk about this, even in the way I talk about mental illness and addiction, right. That we need to really be thoughtful about how we talk about the relationships between these things. Right. Because mm -hmm. like being black, being queer does not inherently yes. make you more likely to experience homelessness. Like, but racism and queer phobia mm -hmm. cause homelessness. Right. Yeah. And so it's, and it's, uh, I would even go into mental illness and addiction in the same way that like, you know, having a mental illness doesn't mean that all of a sudden you run out and want to live on the streets. It's actually because our, the way society is structured makes it nearly impossible for a person with a severe mental illness to stay adequately housed. Right. So when it comes to communities that are already marginalized, uh, homelessness does discriminate but it's it's because we do <laughs> yeah um i love and, that line in the book actually i wrote it, i have it here on my notes yeah um and especially when when you're talking about housing i mean you you cannot talk about homelessness or housing in america without talking about race right because mm. housing is one of the primary ways that we have discriminated against black people in this country and continue to do so. I, it, you know, I talk about, um, you know, redlining and there's an amazing yes. book that I reference a lot called the color of law, yeah. um, that really opened my eyes. Cause that book is only barely about redlining. It's about everything else right. <laughs> that was, that was put in place to prevent, uh, primarily black people from purchasing homes and therefore accumulating, generational wealth right mm. and then on top of that uh you still have housing discrimination there's it feels like there's a new story every week of you know uh, black homeowner goes to sell their home gets quoted one price and then they have their white friend come and put up their pictures and be the one to show the home and they get quoted triple the price you know yeah. like yeah. this it's still it's still real um and and we can't, as I say early in the book, we can't talk about homelessness without housing. And mm. we can't talk about housing in America without talking about housing discrimination. Right. Mm. And so ultimately, like, that is what leads to uh, huge disproportionate rates of, yeah. of black people experiencing homelessness versus white people. Mm. Uh, and I've, I've seen this play out personally, where, you know, I, you know, when if I were to suddenly lose all of my income uh, and job and, you know, all of that, I would be able to go live with my parents for a while, my in-laws, because yeah, they, yeah. they have a house that they were able to buy with the help from their grandparents who were able to buy a house because of the GI bill, which was only for white people returning yeah. for more like yeah. there's, and you can trace that 
back, right? Whereas I would work with uh, with black clients who, like their their mom lived in the city, but their mom was on Section Eight, and if they tried to move in with their mom, their mom would have lost their voucher for having somebody mm. living there that's not on the lease, right? And mm. so. And that's that's for someone who even still has connection to family, mm-hmm. which not everybody does for a lot of a lot of good reasons, a lot of bad reasons. Like, uh, um, and so we just we can't cannot talk about this without without talking about those things. And then, in terms of you know queer identities, um, a lot of the same stuff. But then on yeah. top of that, we have a huge disproportionate number of unhoused youth. Uh, because yeah. of families who, when you know, when a young person tries to come out to their family, get get kicked out, yeah. um, and a lot of them, I, I talk about in the book, like we saw a lot of that in LA, and especially I worked in Hollywood, and we had a huge population of LGBTQ plus youth who were unhoused because, you know, if you're if you're queer in the middle of the country, and you're thrown out and you have nowhere to go. Like what, what has your family been telling you <laughs> like yeah. your whole life? Yeah. Hollywood and California, they're the ones with the gay agenda. <laughs> You're like, yeah. all right, I'm going to go there uh, right. because California is uh, Los Angeles, especially it's, it's maybe a safe place to be queer, but it's not a safe place to be poor. Mm. And so you end up like choosing one form of safety and losing another. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to continue digging in around this this thought of like what causes homelessness. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's the threat throughout the book. And, you know, I was thinking about, you know, the different uh, sections you have, you know, whether it's mental um, health issues, whether it's addiction, different things. But I think even down to the inequalities or um, I think just inherently applying for housing, um yo, it is not fair. You know, when you think of what it takes to rent an apartment, um, it really makes sense to me how people can end up uh, without a house. Because, for example, many apartments that I have had to apply for, you need three times, uh, your income has to be three times what the, the apartment is. And I was living in Denver is 2000 bucks is like a one bedroom or a studio mm-hmm. like who's making a lot of people aren't making six thousand dollars <laughs> right um i i i don't know that. most people yeah most like people that's most not. people yeah. and, and i want you know and i have been turned down from places just because i was um even working decent jobs and just couldn't get to that three times barrier and so talk about some of these issues that are causing, you know, homelessness. Um, yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, like and I referenced this earlier, like I like to differentiate causes of homelessness versus what I call like risk factors. Because yeah. again, like, you know, having a mental illness, I'm not comfortable call- calling that a cause of homelessness mm. because it's only a cause of homelessness because housing yeah. is is off the rails right exactly yeah. like you described the way society is shaped um, yeah. makes it because, that way because if you have a mental illness right that that precludes you from being able to work which a good number or or any kind of disability right mm-hmm. 
the maximum benefits that you can receive if you're a single individual is like around 1200, 1400 a month. That's mm-hmm. not rent in almost every city, right? Yeah. And and even in the ones that it is, it's not it's not a third of like rent isn't a third of that income. So you're yeah. talking about like still being able to afford groceries to be mm. able to pay utilities like uh so there's that piece right like rent rent is just out of control and nobody is yeah. willing to admit it right mm. um are like the amount of folks in this country who are rent burdened which means they uh, spend more than 50 percent of their income on rent is the highest it's been literally ever same mm. like and the recommended is 30 percent right? That 30% of your income should go to rent. And the amount of folks who are actually there is, again, it's the lowest it's it's ever been, right? Because uh, that's because rents have gone up and wages have not. And, Mm. and the problem is, is that like owning a building and charging rent is one of the best (laughs) ways to make money in this country. And a lot of largely corporations are doing it. That's a big a big shift too that doesn't get talked about very much is that you know when you talk about property owners and landlords you know if you say anything bad about that people get really offended. Because I they mean, think offended, it, yeah, offended. Even if they don't own, oh, yeah, yeah, property. I'm like, they, why are you mad? <laughs> because they they think you're talking about like mom pa landlord who like you know rent out the house they grew up in because they've moved into their next house. And ultimately, that's not what we're talking about anymore. We're talking about like largely corporations and some of them not even located in this country owning large swaths of rental properties throughout major cities who and they own so much that they're actually able to manipulate the housing market. Like in in really big cities like Los Angeles and New York, we're actually seeing that these corporations will actually like leave units vacant because they can afford to take the loss long enough for them to ultimately then charge more later. Which is wild. (laughs) And it's just, it's wild that we allow that to happen, but it's because we've, we value the, this, this myth of like a free market Mm -hmm. (laughs) over like a city's responsibility to have enough housing for its residents that they can access. Right. Mm. And so especially, you know, your coastal cities are just really suffering with these huge housing shortages where, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's pushing everyone out. And so Mm. what we see again is the folks who already have some sort of, you know, limitation or barrier to housing, whether it's because of racism, because they Mm. have an addiction, because, they struggle with mental illness or have a disability like those are the folks that end up on the streets first right Mm. so those things again they're risk factors but we'd be wrong to call those causes of homelessness because the cause is this housing market Mm. and those other things just put you at at the bottom of our society's totem pole and that's who's going to fall into homelessness first Mm. yeah no thank you for you know really teasing that out uh because you know, our society is built on certain ideologies, certain thoughts around productivity, uh, the worth, yeah. the inherent worth of people or the lack of it, right? And, and so 
you know, these different things, you know, even an addiction, um, that's not, you shouldn't be put on the street, right? Like if we had a society that was committed to wholeness and wellness, uh, we would find ways to help make you whole with the things that you need, the resources that you need, right? Uh, right. Neither the myriad of, of mental health issues that people experience here, uh, and there's a range of them, right? Um, uh, that shouldn't that shouldn't equal homelessness, right? So right. I appreciate that. Yeah, and I would say we also we don't talk enough about how homelessness causes addiction. Um, yeah. and how and how it exacerbates mental health now i wouldn't say homelessness like causes someone to become schizophrenic right but if you do have schizophrenia and you end up losing your housing and end up on the streets mm. it's going to be a lot worse your ability to regulate to medicate all of the stressors that can trigger an episode are going to be so much worse right um and so this notion of like, oh, we have an addiction problem and that's what's causing homelessness, I, I'd say the opposite is way more true. Like a mm. huge reason that addiction is so prevalent is because like people are miserable. <laughs> We've mm. created a society where so many people are are miserable and, you know, drugs for all the bad things that they do. They sure do make you feel good. <laughs> you know, mm. they make miserable people feel feel better. Yeah. And 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 we've seen, and this is this is why I ended up devoting two chapters to addiction because I'm so passionate about it that, you know, ultimately if we provided people with their basic needs, we would see addiction go down. Yeah. Um, that's been studied, it's been proven. If we yeah. provided people with housing and their basic needs we would see people's mental health get better. Like it's not a cure for, you know, diagnosable mental illnesses, but it makes them easier to manage, makes them easier to regulate and to regulate the, like the worst symptoms of. Yeah. I was thinking you know, this, uh, as I was reading your book there, that, um, there's this knee jerk reaction from uh, a lot of people's <laughs> to a lot of the things that you're just saying right there. And, mm -hmm. Uh, throughout the book and the knee-jerk reaction usually summed up in uh why should we have to give all these resources to these people right and there's almost this like a front that happens um uh with people like i've worked hard my whole life you know why should we have to give just these things away to people and it, it it comes up in a lot of different ways. Even when you talk about raising minimum wage, people feel so entitled is the word that I was thinking. And it feels like by giving things away to people that you consider less deserving, it feels like there's something being taken away from you, right? And so thoughts on that, right? I feel like what yeah. you're saying and what you're pointing to um, it angers people. It 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 riles some things because it's that bootstrapped thing that you that you yeah. mentioned a few times. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of things I'd like to say to that. Uh, I mean, depending on my relationship with the person, right? I I usually try to puncture their idea of you know how they got where they are, and yeah. and to and to be honest and. <laughs> and tell some truth like yeah. oh like you're we're not going to talk about how you know you're 
your dad gave you your first job or how yeah. your grandparents paid for your school or, you know, like, uh, you know, so any way that, first of all, we can puncture this myth, because this is something we talk about with housing, right? Like uh, people are, people don't like housing vouchers, right? Because, oh, we're just giving them like free housing or we're subsidizing their housing. Who's subsidizing my housing? Well, mm -hmm. actually, the government is subsidizing your housing. Like your home loan came with uh, a super low interest rate because, uh, or you use this tax credit or you use this loophole, you actually are able to write off your property taxes because the federal government subsidizes home ownership. Mm. And it does and it and and that then that's limitless, right? There is no certain amount of this much of the budget. It's no, it's it's an entitlement. You you can write off all of these different housing related expenses off your taxes if you own your house. Mm. Uh, but all of a sudden, oh, for low income renters, oh, what we're just giving things away now, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that's one thing I would say. Yeah. Um, another thing I would say, and this is, you know, going to get to, you know, larger socioeconomic <laughs> critique and all that, but I just, I guess I would wonder what the point of living in, you know, such a wealthy, developed, progressive, progressive <laughs> country is if we can't provide a standard of living for the people who live here, right? Like, mm. what is the point of, you know, organizing ourselves around around elected officials if it isn't to properly make yeah. sure we have the resources that we need in our communities, right? Like, what's the point of, and I felt this so much living in Los Angeles, like, the, the GDP of California, if it were a country, would be, like, number five, ranked in all of all countries right like that's wild <laughs> and and yet and yet we have like just some of the greatest wealth disparity because mm. because it's only for some people right mm. and so i just uh yeah i would i would puncture that that sense of that belief that you know i got here completely on my own because it's just it's never true yeah um and then just say like what's what's the point of of everything that you believe like this community, this country, the city, whatever kind of body community you're identifying with, if mm. it doesn't mean that we can provide like an essential standard of living for people that is above, you know, misery. Yeah. It's the worst when it's the, the people that who are the most vehement are self-proclaimed Christians but I yep. digress. <laughs> I get too, no, that's not a digression. That's <laughs> that's the that's the point of the book. Hey, it's that's, like that's why the are point. you so mad? <laughs> and, <laughs> oh yeah, and again, like that's I come back to that time and again in the book is like, hey, grace means you didn't get what you deserved, mm -hmm. you know. So why are you so concerned with what other people deserve? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Jesus has some parables. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of that, just two last questions I have for you. Um, Towards the end of the book, I, I cry my eyes out. Um, you tell this uh, story of um, someone you met named Robert. Um, you know, it was like, we're good for it. Um, and I thought what was uh, beautiful is you talk about uh, this piece of art that Robert was uh, trying to create on this, you know, large canvas. 
um, and he had this vision to create it of heaven and hell, right? And um, I don't know how long that Robert was working on it, but apparently he had been filling in uh, hell quite a, a lot. And something really stuck with me um, on page 182, uh, because you asked him, is it harder to paint heaven uh, than hell? And he says, it's impossible. I've never seen heaven. I have no idea what it could be like. But hell, hell I know. And then you write, in the years I've spent working and advocating with people experiencing homeless, homeless, uh, experiencing homelessness, I've witnessed hell on earth. Hell looks like people overdosing in the park, being ticketed for their homelessness so many times that police issue an arrest warrant having an unattended injury so severe that it's crawling with maggots. Hell is also politicians who order the displacement of encampments to score political points with wealth, with, with wealthy constituents or residents who protest the building of affordable housing, right? And so it's this notion of, you know, often um, people will, you know, label, you know, this thought of, you know, as a social gospel or you, you're just interested in justice and you should just stick to telling people about heaven and hell. And I love what you illuminated there because people can't worry about a heaven out there or a hell that you're trying to scare them out of when they are experiencing hell right in their everyday lives. Right. And so any thoughts on that? I thought that was such a beautiful piece that um, I think often Christians don't really think uh, thoughtfully on. Yeah. I mean, you know, in terms of you know, a real doctrine of heaven and hell is not topics I talk about very much right, anymore right. because I'm, but, uh, but it is, it is kind of fun again to, to question those because there's twice, both in the passage we talked about earlier, where Jesus says, you know, whatever you've done, the least of these you've done for me, Jesus in that passage is kind of talking about who, who gets into the kingdom and who doesn't. Mm. And then in another story, Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus, uh, mm. you know, the rich man ends up in hell and Lazarus ends up in heaven. And so, you know, for whatever your doctrine of heaven and hell might be, there's just as much evidence in, in mm. what Jesus talks about to say that, you know, who ends up there and who doesn't is based on how we treat the marginalized yeah. and, and nothing else, frankly. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, to the, to the point I was making it and that, that chapter just, you know, I, I, I think we don't do enough talking about heaven and hell as, as realities, <laughs> as Jesus yes, did, yes, right. Yes, as yes, realities yeah. that exist on earth. Um, and you know, this notion of we were primarily concerned with, you know, where the eternal souls of unhoused people, like, I just, I'm, I'm very uninterested in that, to be honest. I'm so, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't be less interested mm -hmm. um, in that for a variety of reasons. One of them being that, you know, a lot of unhoused people are Christians and we just forget that because we would rather believe that they're not so that we can blame their homelessness mm. on their spirituality right um but you know there's just 
you could talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You can go all different directions with it, but really it's just about like, it's about the ways that we separate the physical and the spiritual that yeah. are honestly have nothing to do with, with Jesus have nothing yeah. to do with God and are all about like the realities that we would rather avoid yeah. talking about. No, it's beautiful. And I I even love how you ended that section talking about clawing for pieces of heaven, you know, now, like in the work that you do. And that was beautiful too. Right. Um, yeah. Hmm. Last question. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, how can people connect with you? <laughs> how can people yeah. uh, find you? Um, talk about the MCU with you uh, <laughs> <laughs> in any party words. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, and that's that's the primary way that I interact with the world, despite the fact that it could go away at any moment. True. So <laughs> if you're if you're going to find me on Twitter, go find me on Instagram, too. Yeah. Uh, on both on both i'm at kevin m nye one mm. uh, and i also have a website kevin m nye.com where you can contact me it'll go to my email you can also mm. sign up for my newsletter there mm. uh, i encourage everyone if there's any person that you like interacting with on twitter robert if I, get hit hit them up in multiple ways sign mm. up for those those sub stacks those newsletters mm. get them on multiple social medias because yeah. Things can disappear fast and you don't want to lose, lose contact. Truly. Mm. Mm. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. <laughs> mm -hmm. Black Coffee and Theology Pod is a production of Three Black Men, the podcast about theology, culture, and the world around us. Follow us on Twitter at Three Black Men. If you like the content that you are receiving here and want to receive more, whether that is in longer conversations, essays, devotions, and videos from either myself, Sam, or Trey, please sign up for, for our Patreon at patreon.com slash three black men. Don't forget to like, rate, and review Black Coffee and Theology Pod as well as Three Black Men.